Well, who'd have thought it? You're all still here, listening to the Nasty Pasty podcast. Whatever were you thinking? Ah well, seeing as you're here, let's tell you what it's all about. I'm Andy Roberts, and one of my major passions is horror, or shock cinema, really. Those two avenues sort of combined in an equally major way in the 1980s in Britain, when several tabloid newspapers and social busybodies began to complain about the availability of unregulated VHS tapes containing everything from Mary Poppins to the likes of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Of course, a furore started because people panicked and started attributing crimes and the current social unrest to these video nasties as they were becoming known, rather than actually appropriately blaming the Tories' ridiculous budget cuts and insistence on the Falklands conflict, which led to riots and mass job losses. We all know it's much easier to blame something other than yourself, so the MPs themselves, including Margaret Thatcher, suddenly got involved and before you could scream, think of the children... An official list of films was produced, and the police raided local shops and businesses for the offending titles. The aftermath of all this was the rebranding of the BBFC, who suddenly became extremely censorious and prevented a lot of films, uncut or otherwise, being released in this country, even to this day. As a horror fan, and as an adult, I was annoyed that this was even allowed to happen, so I sought out those films and I remain ever more unimpressed. I then started this podcast to take a look at the other similar titles that were next to the nasties on the shelves and I ponder about why they weren't seized when they were just as bad. I put bad in inverted commas because most of the nasties weren't even that extreme. Unless you were an MP in 1983 who hadn't seen a horror film since 1922's Nosferatu. In the past year or so, I've covered slashers, jello films, sexploitation, cannibal films, you name it, we've probably had it. Today, we're returning one final time to another genre that we've already done. We are indeed back on Poliziotesky films today, an Italian take on crime-slash-gangster movies that had a particular focus on brutality and the social context of post-fascist Italy, with frequent themes being vigilantes, heists, car chases, corruption, and of course, graphic violence. Previously, we've covered The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist, as well as Almost Human, Today, we're covering specifically more brutal examples of the genre, with two productions helmed by two video-nasty directors. Today, we have Ruggiero Diodato's Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man, and Lucio Fulci's Contraband. So let's head straight into the first bit of Carnage. When Maggie, world is Twelve years ago Violence wasn't so wild around the world now try to stop yourself just in front of the children's show you don't know if the night is living on i've heard a girl singing with a sigh i've got a cat Ladies, 
Christmas season, a woman is violently attacked when two muggers on a bike grab her handbag and drag her along the pavement, ramming her head into a lamppost and kicking her to death when her hand still does not let go. Two plainclothes police officers, Fred and Tony, driving past on a motorbike, pursue the thugs, chasing them at high speed through the city and residential areas. Shortly after the thugs run over and kill a blind man's seeing eye dog, the cops force the criminals into a laundry van where they crash. Tony finds the driver already dead, but his accomplice is found by Fred alive, until Fred snaps his neck on purpose. The two return to the police station, asking receptionist Norma about any other cases of interest, as well as her preferences for which guy she'd rather sleep with. Soon after, a colleague of theirs called Rick and their captain enter, with details of a plan to snag a criminal by the name of Roberto Pasquini, or Bibi. But the captain is reluctant because of the dubious nature of their informants. As Rick leaves the building, he is shot by an ambush waiting in their car. When Fred and Tony arrive and manage to shoot one of the attackers, causing him to fall off his bike and get crushed between two cars. The pair decide to go ahead with the plan to ensnare BB, dressing as members of a local gambling establishment and beating up the staff outside. Following through with their plan, they douse all the cars parked at the club in gasoline and set them alight. It gets BB's attention with impressing his police informants about the special squad that the pair belong to. The next day, a situation unfolds when three thugs take a woman called Mona hostage in her home. When negotiations stall due to the men's desperation and requests for a car, Fred and Tony are brought in to help defuse the situation. They lure the criminals and Mona out with the car that they've requested, though they surprise them with a police helicopter, forcing them to retreat back into the house. By this time, Fred has sped into the house on his motorcycle, shooting the criminals dead and allowing the pair to save Mona. Shortly afterwards, BB has one of his gambling debtors punished by having his eye gouged out, while Tony and Fred's captain receives a tip about an upcoming bank robbery by five members of BB's gang. The pair head to a cafe near the by the bank in question, spying the suspicious men dotted around, and using their concealed silenced pistols, are able to kill the men before they even attempt the thievery. Tracing BB's latest address down, they encounter BB's old maid, Marika, and BB's younger sister, Lena, who is rude, abrasive, and intensely seductive. She and Fred sleep together, and then when Fred has finished, Lena seduces Tony straight afterwards, sleeping with him too. After their conduct of killing the five men, the captain restricts their investigating to just BB's case, and informs them of his latest gambling den on the riverside. Arresting two of the thugs there, Fred interrogates them by stringing them up with the handcuffs, but finds out no further information, while Marika meets with BB, informing him of the two cops' visit. Subsequently, BB's police informant is transferred to another city, leaving the criminal blind, while Fred and Tony practice shooting targets in a gorge, playfully shooting at each other, just as assassins with rifles try to kill them. They manage to kill the men first, causing the captain to declare that BB is onto them. 
On a lead, the pair visit a dog race to meet one of Bibi's old colleagues, who tells them of Mirandi, the man who had his eye gouged out before by Bibi, who would have a grudge against Bibi enough to help them. They go to see him and offer him money to lure Bibi into an ambush by pretending that he wants to repay his debt, blackmailing him with his heroin addiction. Mirandi goes to Bibi's moored boat and informs his right-hand man that he's won money in a new gambling place run by two Sicilians. Bibi later telephones Mirandi asking questions about the place and agrees to meet legitimately at his boat to discuss it. Fred and Tony meet Mirandi at the boat taking Bibi's Swedish girlfriend hostage. Bibi, however, has guessed that it's actually a trap and planned ahead by rigging the boat with explosives, ordering his henchmen to detonate it. Just as this is about to happen, the police captain shoots the pair of them dead, arousing the attention of Fred and Tony. When they realise the captain has saved them the effort, they shrug it off and detonate the boat themselves, destroying all the evidence. Has he an address for Pasquini? No one has an address for that son of a bitch. Captain, what's so complicated about it all? If Pasquini's there, he's there. And if he isn't, well, for three years he's been giving us the runner-up. If he gives us another one, who's going to suffer? Our reputation. And why should we oblige him over and over? Since Guido doesn't know his contact, I cannot authorize the operation. And now I think of it, how did yours go this morning? They were waiting in front of that bank. Information checked. Then what? Then, well, then they got killed. Drove like crazy and smashed into a truck. His got speared when he landed on the shift, while mine smashed his cervical vertebrae. The autopsy will confirm it. Explain why you had yours and he had the other, since there was only one motor. Uh, when well, they one fell, the one back, went ahead and of the other. The other one was in the front. And to keep it fair, you had to pitch pennies for the toughest, didn't you? That's right. I believe you. Beat it. Uh, look, Captain, run along. Yes, sir. I'm able to convince you that a woman's superiority is a fable. Terms like inferior and superior go with male phallocracy. Phallo what? Phallocracy. That means keeping women in their proper place with a stiff rod. She supposes all men are like the one or two queers she's had in her bed. When the fox can't reach the grapes, he says they're sour. Well, I've tired out as many as they come, so what do you say? They already tired you. Come on, Fred. Okay. I'll bring it up in the morning. What a surprise. Released in 1976, Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man was Ruggiero Deodato's one and only foray into the poliziotesque genre. Much more notorious for his gory adventures into cannibal territory and extreme cinema, this film is instead a rather typical spaghetti crime film with a few unique elements that do aid in making it stick out, though it's debatable whether this ultimately makes it a great film. The film starts out very strong, with a particularly nasty sequence of brutality against a female pedestrian in a bid to snatch a handbag. The sequence is brutal and cold, quickly remedied by our two protagonists who proceed to chase the perpetrators in quite a thrilling chase sequence. Very frenetic and full of energy, the chase culminates in the cops finally catching their prey, only to then murder them in a triumphant case of vigilantism. Some of the effectiveness of this sequence probably comes from the fact that the sequence was shot without permits, so it was done rather quickly to avoid any official penalties. Fred and Tony embody the main running theme of Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man, the buddy cop trope. But like the dual nature of their police partnership, the main draw of the film gives off two distinctive vibes. 
Firstly, it's rather positive. Ray Lovelock and Mark Perel do have a great chemistry on screen, and their characters clearly have a camaraderie that is rather pleasantly infectious at times. They're simply trying to do their jobs, and they strive to eliminate crime in any way they can, all with a 70s flavour that is quite reminiscent of the antics of Starsky and Hutch. Unfortunately, there is a rather unpleasant side too. Despite their actions having the intention of doing ultimate good, their methods are questionable at least, and criminal at worst. It's mentioned that a psychological test by their captain indicated that the pair have criminal tendencies, which is only confirmed by their heavy-handed approach of steaming in with guns blazing, with little regard for innocent lives or the legal system of punishment. Instead, they'll happily break the neck of a handbag thief, gratuitously torture some staff at a gambling ring, or commit a spate of arson on known criminals' cars simply because they can. It's not exactly the first time a protagonist's actions in a cop movie are dubious, but their characters in regards to women are also less than gentlemanly. They all make crude, carnal remarks about women, suggesting that any who moan or believe that they're superior simply need to be put in their place by a stiff rod. Their conversations with the secretary Norma, while clearly ungraceful due to the translation issue, do carry a bit of a gross feeling towards females, which does seem a little bit off. Norma states her case that women are not inferior compared to men, and they care little for men's supposed chauvinism, especially when men want sex. But they basically respond by saying they can change her mind if they nail her, leading her to declare them stuck in their philocracy. Unfortunately, Norma is the only sole female voice of reason in the film. Other female characters are portrayed as way less bothered by the overbearing patriarchal system of control enforced upon them. Mona, the kidnapped victim, is simply reduced to a squealing mess of blubbering and weakness when she's held hostage, with her sole function is to bear the brunt of the men's abuse. One of the more troubling aspects, though, is Lena, the younger sister of the antagonist Bibi, who is rather indifferent to both Fred and Tony at first, until the usual Italian trope of Fred giving her a good slap due to her fresh mouth, at which point she simply flails onto the bed, and instead of writhing in pain, her attire opens to expose her breasts, she becomes immediately submissive, and gyrates in an aroused state. Yeah, it goes there. Man becomes angry, assaults a woman, she becomes immediately turned on, and he fucks her. Not only that, but straight away afterwards, she's still so turned on that she willingly fucks Tony as well. While it's an incredibly poor taste, and is rather troubling for modern perspectives, this sort of Italian machismo was no different to almost every other film of the same ilk at the time, and it's simply a symptom of these spaghetti crime movies in the 70s. The fact that the film is clearly not too serious either means that you can't really take the misogyny stuff at face value. It would kind of be like accusing Carry On Camping of endorsing sexual harassment, or Candyman of being racist. There's certainly themes of male versus female superiority, but it's relegated to background noise in favour of the main narrative, which is actually a rather simple crook keeps getting set back by our two cops and seeks revenge in various ways until the finale. Despite the plot being quite simple and easy to follow, the film does have its very violent highlights. The opening attack is very visceral and memorable, as are the scenes of splattery gunfire, of Mirandi being beaten up and his eye removed, Mona being terrorised by her kidnappers, the gamblers being strung up with handcuffs, and the silly but effective scene where Fred and Tony are ambushed while target practising. There's just enough bloody gruesomeness peppered nicely through the movie to stem any boredom for the sometimes talky screenplay. 
Apparently, though, the film was meant to be even gorier, notably in the scene of Mirandi's eye removal, which was meant to be shown on screen with a mean-spirited crushing under Bibi's boot. It was edited out, though, to be approved for the Italian release, and it hasn't been reinstated to date. This is not to say that the film doesn't have weaknesses, though. The plot is really nothing to write home about, sadly, and it merely functions to get our good-natured rascals from one set piece to another. Details like the fact that Lena is seemingly important, but used only as a cum-dumpster, or the fact that the corrupt policeman isn't even named or mentioned by the others, and the fact that Fred and Tony inexplicably go shooting targets at a quarry because they've simply got nothing better to do, smacks of the writing not really extending beyond which setup of violence that they can do next. While the film starts excitingly strong, by the halfway point the film takes a bit of a slow nosedive, and it ends up being a much more low-key affair. For example, Bibi successfully lures the cops into a trap and is about to push the detonator. Not only does the captain end up being the one to finally dispose of the criminal, but Fred and Tony don't even meet with Bibi face to face, which is a bit of a weakness in my opinion. The fact that they don't even land the killing blow is anticlimactic with knobs on, and the entire sequence of the boat and Bibi's trap just comes across as fairly milk toast compared with the intense opening. Though the final shot of the boat exploding does raise a smile at least because it's painfully obvious from the gigantic reeds next to the river that the boat is in fact a miniature. Overall, the film is quite balanced with its good points and bad points. Its plot is nothing to write home about, and its emphasis on vigilantism and taking the law into your own hands certainly shoves it towards the more fascistic examples of Italian polizia movies. The misogyny is as rampant as ever, and outside of our main duo, the characters are rather perfunctory and incidental. However, it does have a brilliant soundtrack which gets you into that Italian exploitation mood. It has some crazy dialogue and cheesy quips. But most of all, it has some truly memorable and frenetic action sequences that stick in the memory long afterwards. Quentin Tarantino himself is a huge fan of the film, and with some of the raw, violent set pieces in Diodato's film, it's really not hard to see why this would be quite a popular choice for fans. Fred was played by Mark Perel, who we've encountered previously on Lucio Fulci's Don't Torture a Duckling as the Murderous Priest. Likewise, we've encountered Tony before as well, played by the late Ray Lovelock, who's been in both Almost Human and Last House on the Beach. Apparently, there was tension on set between both Perel and Lovelock, but it seems to have been just one of those pervasive rumours, as Lovelock himself recalls the pair being quite friendly. It may have started when there were reports of a cancelled sequel, which was apparently due to the actors' agents having a disagreement rather than the actors themselves. The captain was played by actor Adolfo Chaley, who played the villain Largo in the James Bond film Thunderball, as well as roles in Who Saw Her Die and Hitler The Last Ten Days. Rudy was played by Franco City, who'd been in The Godfather and The Godfather Part 3, Watch Me When I Kill, and The Canterbury Tales. Sylvia Dionisio, whom we've seen previously in Terror Express, played the role of Norma, and notably she was still married to the director Ruggiero Diodato at this time. The short-lived Rick was played by Marino Massey, who was in the Luigi Cozzi video nasty Contamination, as well as the Giallo film The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, The Night Porter, Confessions of Emmanuel, and Phantom of Death. Mirandi was played by actor Bruno Corazzari, a frequent character actor who had appeared in a variety of Italian productions, like The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, Seven Bloodstained Orchids, Violent Professionals, The Killer Wore Gloves, The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist, The Psychic, The Black Cat, Against Nature, and Body Puzzle. 
The unnamed corrupt policeman was played by Danielle Doblino, who'd made appearances in two video nasties, Killer Nun and Late Night Trains, as well as Black Belly of the Tarantula, Short Night of the Glass Dolls, White Fang, The Big Racket, Red Knights of the Gestapo, and the other film we're covering today, Contraband. Sophia Dionisio appeared as the lascivious Lena, who'd made a small appearance in My Dear Killer. Tom Fellahy, who played one of the police majors, had been in a huge amount of projects, like Cat and Nine Tales, Case of the Scorpion's Tale, Four Flies and Grey Velvet, Seven Bloodstained Orchids, All the Colours of the Dark, Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye, Spasmo, Almost Human, Five Women for the Killer, Syndicate Sadists, Salon Kitty, Red Knights of the Gestapo, The Video Nasties, Prisoner of the Cannibal God and Nightmare City, The Other Hell, and finally Escape from the Bronx. Mona, the victim who's terrorised in her home, was played by Margarita Horowitz, who'd had appearances in Death Laid an Egg, Cat and Nine Tales, Crimes of the Black Cat, Perfume of the Lady in Black, Salon Kitty, Nazi Love Camp 27, and even Argento's beautiful video nasty, Suspiria. We've covered the director Ruggiero Diodato before when we did Cut and Run, so he doesn't really require another introduction. He was rather well-known during the Nasties saga anyway, as the director of several Nasties, including Cannibal Holocaust, Last Cannibal World, and The House on the Edge of the Park. Writer Ferdinando de Leo also worked on 1971's Cold-Blooded Beast, while another, Alberto Maras, worked as a producer on Deodato's Waves of Lust, as well as this film too. The other writer-slash-producer, Vincenzo Salviani, also worked on Wave of Lust, as well as Fulci's film, The Devil's Honey. The music was done by a chap called Ubaldo Contignello, who'd previously worked on Deodato's cannibal film, Last Cannibal World, which was one of the Section 3 video nasty films, and a film that we've covered before on Nasty Pasty, Lamberto Barba's Macabre. Guigielmo Mancori did the film's stylish cinematography, going on to other projects like Sister Emmanuel, Fulci's Manhattan Baby, Wild Beasts, and Naked and Cruel, which was a Mondo film. Gianfranco Simoncelli, the editor of Death Smiles on a Murderer, worked on this film as well, while Argento's second unit director on his Animals trilogy, Roberto Parianti, also assisted Diodato on this project. The film was released in 1976 in Italy, but it notably skipped the US cinemas entirely. It did have a release the same year in the UK cinemas where it passed with cuts, though there are little details of what they actually found contentious. Arguably, there was a lot, though, that the BBFC would have been sensitive about. It did, however, get an uncut pre-cert release on VHS under the title The Terminators, and it could have realistically garnered some police notice. Not only was Mad Dog Killer one of the nasties, which was the same genre and had a very similar tone, but the VHS was also released by Video Film Productions, who'd released the Joe D'Amato video nasty Anthropophagus the Beast, so the police would have been on the lookout for the company's other repertoire. I can't find any reference to it being seized, however, so it does look like this one did slip by without much notice. It subsequently became nominally banned when the Video Recordings Act came into effect and outlawed all the uncertified tapes, and it would be another whopping 30 years before the British public saw the film again, when the ever-trustworthy 88 films released the uncut print on Blu-ray and DVD. So that was Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man. Let's speed unlawfully into the next crime caper, Lucio Fulci's Contraband. 
A dodgy deal of cigarette smuggling between some criminals, led by a man called Luca and some sailors, is interrupted by the police, who give chase. Luca manages to evade them by detonating a decoy boat, allowing them to escape. At home, Luca celebrates his narrow escape by kissing his wife Adele after having a shower and arranges to meet up with his accomplice, his brother Mickey, at a racetrack. While there, they encounter a man that they seemingly dislike called Sherino, whom they suspect is involved in the police knowing about their operation. At a nightclub, Luca and Mickey inform their superior, Perlante, of their suspicions, who suggests that they wait to see what happens and to leave it to him in order to look into. Later on at a stable owned by Mickey, someone lights a fire and kills one of his prized horses, infuriating Mickey into driving madly to his property. The pair encounter a roadblock with police, which Mickey narrowly swerves to avoid. Getting out to apologise, he's shocked when the officers turn out to be fakes who splatter him with gunfire and kill him. Luca survives, but refuses to help the police. Meeting with Palanti again, Luca explains that he's not going to let this slide and attends Mickey's funeral on a fleet of the operation's boats, while the police spy on them. At the racetrack, Luca gets paranoid about the safety of his son and vows revenge on Sherino, much to the chagrin of Adele, who says that she's moving to her father's with their son. After getting information on who ordered Mickey's killing from an informant, the man is stabbed to death in front of Luca's eyes. Luca then confronts the man, beating him up and drowning him in quicklime. Later that evening, Luca tosses the assassin's corpse through Sherino's window and confronts him at gunpoint. Instead of confessing, Sherino implores Luca that he had nothing to do with Mickey's death. One of Sherino's men knocks Luca down, allowing Sherino to have the advantage. Rather than kill him, however, they simply beat him up and dump him back home, where a horrified Adele discovers him. On the informant's tip, Luca intercepts a drug pickup in an abandoned boat and attacks the courier, torturing him with a knife until he squeals about his boss, a man called Marsigliese. Phoning Palante about this lead, he's told that Marsigliese is into dealing hard drugs rather than mere cigarettes. Across town, Marsigliese meets with a drug courier called Ingrid, who has heroin to offer. While satisfied with her initial stash, Marsigliese then becomes irate after discovering her larger cache is cut with something else, and reacts by sadistically scorching her face with a Bunsen burner. Soon after this, a whole series of shootings and assassinations are perpetrated all across Naples, including Palanti's house, where Palanti narrowly survives an explosion, though his friend Alfredo and his mistress are both killed. Police officer Tarantino arrives on the scene, connecting the dots that mob figures are being targeted, but Palante refutes this, calling Luca later to warn him about the danger. To try and quell the situation, Palante arranges a meeting with the Marsigliese and Luca, where they are offered a merger with his large drugs business. Luca's acquaintances wish to take advantage of the deal, but Luca refuses to accept it against the idea of the drugs. Unwilling to let the crime continue, Tarantino orders a raid of the entire bay, confiscating piles of the contraband cigarettes and arresting all the smugglers. Luca avoids arrest himself when two men drug him and escort him out of his house. He awakens in a fake ambulance with Sherino next to him, who proffers the opportunity for them to cooperate with each other in order to bring down Marsigliese. Going to see Palante to discuss this plan, Luca becomes suspicious when he's acting strange, and then he smells Marsigliese's distinctive aftershave. Sensing an ambush, Luca manages to survive and run away, just as the resultant gunfire kills Sherino's men and wounds Sherino. 
After Luca escapes, Palanti is suddenly shot dead by Chirino, who dies for good shortly afterwards. Luca soon receives a phone call from Marsigliese's men, indicating that they've kidnapped Adele and their son, blackmailing Luca to join forces with them. Reluctantly agreeing, Luca has his son return to him temporarily as a show of gratitude. Another phone call from Marsigliese has him taunting Luca by beating Adele and raping her while her screams are heard on the line. Across town, an elderly retired mafia gangster called Marone has his men prepare weapons for some operation, while the next day, Marsigliese and his men await Luca to meet them in a public square to hand over Adele. Luca arrives, and soon after he asks them to bring Adele to him, Marsigliese and his men are fired upon by Moroni's men, who quickly mow them down using the element of surprise. Discovering Adele's body to be a decoy, Luca chases down Marsigliese. Elsewhere, the police raid the Kingpin's hideout and find Adele battered but alive. Luca gains on Marsigliese and corners him in an alleyway and opens fire, killing him. As the police converge on the bloodbath, the police question the elderly Marone about the carnage, but despite revealing that he knew where Adele was being held, he denies all knowledge of Luca or the killings. Just like the previously mentioned Ruggiero Deodato, Lucio Fulci made his single entry into the Italian Poliziotteschi cycle with Contraband, released in 1980. It occupies a rather bizarre space in Fulci's filmography, as it's sandwiched between two of Fulci's more popular gore flicks, Zombie Flesh Eaters and City of the Living Dead. Fulci wouldn't return to the Poliziotteschi game again, though his exercise in the genre is memorable for the ways in which it's rather consistent with Fulci's more popular output. Oddly, this film was going to be directed by the Bronx Warriors guy, Enzo G. Castellari, initially, which is exactly what happened on Fulci's previous film, Zombie Flesh Eaters. 
In comparison to Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man, Contraband is much more brutal in terms of graphic violence, and it has a difference in terms of most of the characters having more than just base perfunctory functions. Similar to the previous film, though, the plot is just as simple rather than be atypical of what's expected. Unlike Deodato's film, however, Fulci's tale does not begin with quite such a grandiose high-octane chase sequence. It also just kind of jumps into the action right away with little room for easing you in into who is who. Thankfully, it wasn't too taxing once it got going, and we're introduced almost immediately to Luca, a kind-hearted cigarette smuggler who's in the trade with his brother Mickey. The main narrative has Luca seeking vengeance for his brother's death, only to uncover a more sinister plot to supply Naples with heroin rather than the bog-standard cigarettes that they're providing. While the story is just as simple as Live Like a Cop, it does go a little further to establish some proper character motivations rather than just bombard you with violent set pieces. Luca is seen as sort of a charming rogue kind of character, embodied quite well by the handsome Fabio Testi. He's sort of like a post-fascist Italian Robin Hood, soothing the troubles and misery of a populace with cheap contraband ciggies, with a clearly defined reluctance to flood the streets with harder drugs. This anti-drug sentiment is rather odd for a crime film, but it's seemingly implemented to further separate the heinous actions of Marsigliese and the more benevolent actions of Luca. That's not to say Luca is an angel, because he's still ultimately breaking the law and he refuses to listen to his wife's concerns about revenge, which does later lead to his wife and son being in imminent danger. Compared to the other characters, though, Luca is clearly the more golden-hearted. The treacherous Palante is seedy in more ways than one, straddled constantly by two prostitutes who are simply there for his pleasure and verbal aggression when he needs to vent. There's even a scene where he importunes one of his lady friends to seduce his companion Alfredo, which Alfredo clearly does not want. There's a slightly rapey nature to this scene as well, as Palanti seems to be becoming aroused and excited at Alfredo's cries for her to stop. Then, of course, there's Palanti's slimy betrayal of Serino and Luca, which at least allows us to enjoy his deserved bloody end. Speaking of rape, the Marsigliese's behaviour is hugely abhorrent in this film. Apart from killing loads of people to take over the streets of Naples, his actions against Luca and his family are purely evil. Because of Luca's refusal to accept the takeover, the Marsigliese has his wife kidnapped and subjected to a very brutal and protracted sexual assault, the camera lingering on one of the most uncomfortable portrayals I've seen. His unflinching brutality is frequently invoked in the film's violent scenes too, which are much more graphic and bloody than the previous example that we've seen, but we'll talk more about that in a bit. Chirino's character is initially portrayed as the antagonist until Mossigliese is introduced, and it seems to be quite the unfortunate scapegoat for all that goes on. There is a rather nice element to him, though, as he commendably puts aside their differences to help aid Luca against their common foe. Arguably, one of the more enigmatic characters is that of Don Marone, who has minor appearances throughout the whole film, simply watching television and hearing about the events of the whole film. It's all quite ambiguous, until quite a small montage towards the end reveals that he's gearing up to help Luca repel the heroin dealers who were invading their homes. It's quite poignant how Marone helps mow down all of the men, except for the Marsigliese himself, who is left for Luca to pockmark with gunfire, sending him to the trash where he so rightly belongs. In an almost fairy godfather-like ending, Marone covers Luca's revenge by denying all knowledge of him to the police, ultimately saving him from prosecution. 
A lot of the characters' behaviour and motivations were apparently different in the film's original draft, but after the production ran out of funding just two weeks after principal photography started, Fulci received funding from genuine smugglers in Naples to complete the film in its entirety. This led to the smuggler characters becoming more sympathetic and the anti-drug sentiment being established. With much more fleshed-out characters, Fulci is able to lend a bigger punch to the film's more standard screenplay. Another thing that packs a major punch, however, is the film's violently gory set pieces. Being set between two of Fulci's horror pictures has served the film in good stead, as it's actually very close in tone to a horror picture in certain scenes. One of the more memorable scenes has a man's brains being blown out when a gun barrel is inserted into his mouth. Bloody injury details of bullet wounds are quite commonplace in the film, splattering across the screen in abundant delight. Mickey's death itself is a clear harken to the dramatic death of Sonny Corleone in the film The Godfather, while a scene involving a woman having her face scorched with a Bunton burner is long and vicious enough to remain in the memory nigh permanently. There's a very graphic shotgun blast to the abdomen, literally eviscerating the guy, and then there's of course Palanti's death where his neck is shot open by handgun fire. It all fits quite comfortably with what you'd expect from a Fulci film, and it's similar to Antonio Margariti's The Last Hunter in that despite it not actually being a horror film, horror fans would appreciate the emphasis on the graphic gore. Like a lot of Fulci's copybook, the requisite misogyny and the bad attitude towards women is also present in this film. I mean, Adele is treated rather appallingly, and she has little chance to offer anything to the table other than to be a victim. So too is Ingrid, who not only gets her face seared off, but she has a rather unnecessary hiding place for her drug stash, literally inside her vagina in a dildo-shaped container. While this is nothing really new for the genre or Italian cinema of the 70s and 80s, what is new is Fulci's horror-like approach to the violent visuals in the film. Not only are the injuries more extreme and gory, but the camera focuses on them in slow motion, extending the brutality to an almost paranormal feeling. The scene in which Luca's informant is murdered in a foggy quarry has tinges of this nightmarish horror film feel, and his subsequent demise by quicklime seems to be something echoed in Fulci's later film The Beyond. When Luca then uses this body to break into Sherino's home, the slightly dissolved corpse is almost an early precursor for the shambling undead of Fulci's subsequent Gates of Hell trilogy. Even atypical flourishes like the violently flashing strobe lights of the nightclub scene are violent in their own way, showing flashes of intense dancing with fleeting glimpses of naked flesh. Thankfully, the film is not all hard-hitting gore and downbeat betrayals. The film does have a kind of a silly atmosphere sometimes, mostly due to the dialogue and the dubbing. Some of the more vile insults at women are heaved with such a casual air that it sometimes makes these scenes unintentionally humorous. The cops in the film, rather lacking for a Poliziotesky film, are gloriously incompetent, though we should, we should probably be grateful for that as it allows so much death and destruction to ensue. One of the highlighted moments of silliness are when the police are raiding the port area of Naples, arresting everyone that they know to be in on the contraband thing. Two instances in particular caught my eye. One in which a typical Italian is eating his spaghetti dinner and is arrested in the middle of it, causing him to keep hold of the plate and take it out with him during his arrest. Another bit I was nearly crying at was a nun being dragged out of a vehicle protesting at being handled by the police before letting out a mighty fuck you to the arresting officer. These humorous bits are far and few between, 
but the film is packed full of silliness and violence that you won't really be bogged down too much with its rather bleak and nihilistic outlook on the crime world. I certainly enjoyed it better than the previous film, which I was surprised by because I enjoyed the first one quite a bit. Fabio Testi played our main protagonist, Luca, and we've seen him before when we covered What Have You Done to Solange? Marcel Botsufi, who played the villainous Marsigliese, had been in 1971's French Connection and went on to The Crazy Cage 2. Enrico Maisto, who played the short-lived Mickey, had previously appeared in another Polizioteschi film, 1976's Death Dealers. Likewise, Ferdinando Marullo, who played Chirino, had equally appeared in What Have They Done to Your Daughters? The small chief of police role was played by a recurring Fulci man, Fabrizio Giovine, who made appearances in The Psychic and City of the Living Dead as the sinister Father Thomas. Danielle Dublino, as we mentioned before on the previous film, played one of the background prosecutors, while Guido Alberti, who played the elderly Don Moroni, we've seen before also when we covered The Cynic, The Rat and The Fist, and Almost Human. The drug dealeress, Ingrid, who gets her face burnt off, was also in a film that we've seen before, in this case, Deported Women of the SS Special Section. Venantino Venantini, who passed away only last month, we've seen before on Terror Express. Lastly, there was Ajita Wilson, who played the role of Louisa, who's made quite a number of appearances in European exploitation films, like the video nasty Hell Prison, Hotel Paradise, which steals the former's stock footage quite liberally, and also Jess Franco's Sadomania. Wilson was born in 1950 as George Wilson, and she was trans, having undergone reassignment surgery in the mid-70s. After appearing in adult films subsequent to her surgery, she began to appear in both hardcore and softcore erotic films towards the latter end of the 70s, and she became quite a recognisable cult actress. She tragically passed away though in 1987 at the age of 37 in a car accident. Spanish director Carlos Ored, the director of Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, once said of her, she was charming, beautiful and very professional. The rest is not important. And how absolutely bloody right he was. As with Ruggiero Diodato, the godfather of gore, director Lucio Fulci, needs no introduction, especially when he contributed The Beyond, House by the Cemetery and Zombie Flesh Eaters to the annals of Video Nasties. We've covered him before too, and we will be covering him again in future. The film had several writers, one of which was Ettore Sanzo, whom we've encountered before on What Have They Done to Your Daughters? He also wrote Late Night Trains, which was one of the video nasties. Giorgio Mariuzzo, however, was a frequent Fulci collaborator, and he went on to The Beyond, House by the Cemetery, and Enigma. Fabio Fritzi did the music of the film, though admittedly it's quite a far cry from the style of his riveting soundtrack that he did on The Beyond and Zombie Flesh Eaters, both of which were also done by Fulci. He ended up working on most of Fulci's stuff as well, like Manhattan Baby, The Psychic, and also City of the Living Dead. The cinematographer was Sergio Salvati, who'd work later on Fulci's repertoire like The Psychic, Zombie Flesh Eaters, City of the Living Dead, The Black Cat, The Beyond, House by the Cemetery, as well as Bronx Warriors and Ghoulies 2. The editor was a frequent visitor to Nasty Pasty, Vincenzo Tomasi, who's been on New York Ripper and Panic previously. Assistant director Roberto Giandalia was also a frequent Fulci comrade, who worked on most if not all of Fulci's 80s output. 
there's definitely a recurring theme with Fulci of using the same tried and trusted crew members. Special makeup effects guy, Franco Di Girolamo, we've seen before on Amazonia, the Catherine Miles story, uh, Zombie Flesh Eaters 2 and 3, and also Shocking Dark. Another one was Germano Natale, whom we've experienced before on the New York Ripper. This was the chap who worked on Suspiria, Inferno, The Beyond, and Opera, which kind of accounts for the skill of the brutality in this film. Finally, there was Roberto Passe, who worked on Zombie Flesh Eaters, Zombie Holocaust, and the slasher film Body Count. The film was released in Italy in August of 1980, and it received quite a modest return before being exported on video to the rest of Europe. The UK did not have a video release until 1987, rather oddly, so it dodged the hail of bullets that were fired during the Nasty Scare, which I'm sure would have come down on it, having been directed by Fulci and being such a violent example. The 1987 VHS version from Elephant Video, however, suffered the full wrath of the BBFC, who was still in their ultra-censorious mode post-video nasty scare. They chopped a whopping 2 minutes and 52 seconds from the film to remove all sights of gunshot wounds and bloody injury, the burning of Ingrid's face, and the rape and assault of Adele. This version remained the only copy of the film to be available commercially, until Shameless Films had the uncut version passed by the BBFC in 2014. It was then released on DVD, which is the latest version available, and it's packed with juicy extras too. I do thoroughly recommend this one for all of you. So that's it for this week, ladies and gentlemen. So thanks as ever for listening to this idiot talk about utter nonsense. I'll be back next week with another duo of horrors, this time from the Italian Houses of Doom TV series. There'll be more detail in the episode itself, but basically both Lucio Fulci and Umberto Lenzi were hired to make four films for Italian TV but they ended up being so violent that their TV debut was cancelled and they were relegated afterwards to video only. So join us next week for Fulci's Houses of Doom with The House of Clocks and The Sweet House of Horrors. Until then, take care of yourselves and I'll be chattering at you again before you know it. Ciao! (laughs) 